To quote uh, author Paul Tripp in Wider Than Snow, it's his little devotional on sin and mercy from dealing with Psalm 51, Paul Tripp writes, and I quote, sin lives in a costume. That's why it's so hard to recognize. The fact that sin looks so good is one of the things that makes it so bad. In order for sin to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Impatient yelling wears the costume of zeal for truth. Lust can masquerade as the love for beauty. Gossip does its evil work by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as a servant's heart. The pride of always being right masquerade as a love for biblical wisdom. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which he says is part of its draw. Now, I think what this means for us personally is that in our sin, we are all very gifted people. We are gifted self-swindlers. We are far too skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing it as good. We are much better at seeing the sin and the weakness and the failure of others than we are our own. Friends, the bottom line is this. Our sinful pride, which we saw last week, is about puffing ourselves up. Our sinful pride causes us not to hear or see ourselves with accuracy. So often, we're blinded, inwardly duped, puffed up and inflated, filled with high regard for ourselves, that according to Scripture, we are deceiving ourselves, but we're not deceiving God. My sermon this morning is a continuation of last week. It's funny, I was talking to several of you here this morning, and they're like, well, we thought it was just a typo in the bulletin. You know, not only are you preaching twice in a row, but it's the exact same sermon title, and there is two points, just like there were last week. And so it is a different sermon, but it is the same sermon. Um, most preachers uh, have dreamed about what would it be like to preach the exact same sermon two weeks in a row. Most people like, well, they didn't get it the first time. Maybe they, didn't, maybe they won't even recognize that it's the same thing. And so, just to assure you, it is a different sermon, but it is the same sermon. Because Paul is doing this. Paul is addressing an issue uh, that was reported to him by Chloe's people. What's going on in the church that he planted just a few years ago. And Chapters 1 through 3, Paul is dealing with something. And so as you begin to read through the, the chapters 1 through 3, you start to discover there are several seemingly unrelated issues that start bubbling to the surface. Things like, um, the obvious things like division and disunity. If you're there in that text, look at chapter 1. Starting in verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. There's division among you. 
You must be united. There's a call for the same mind and the same judgment. So we see this obvious disunity among its members. All of them saying, well, I follow this guy. I belong to that guy. I like this Sunday school teacher best. He does a better job explaining things. They're going after him. That's my favorite. You observe a wonderful treatise that Paul gives on biblical preaching, where again and again, Paul takes them to the cross and he's bidding them, as one writer says, to fill the splinters of the wood and the steel of the nails. You see, Paul knows that pride reigns only where the cross of Christ has been forgotten or distorted. Let me say that again, friends, because if you don't think you're in danger of this, you're deceiving yourselves. Pride reigns where the cross of Christ has been forgotten or distorted. So he reminds them, and now us, that it was our sin that nailed him there. John Stott, famously in his book, The Cross of Christ, writes, before we can ever see and treasure the cross as something done for us, we must see it as something done by us. Then Paul continues, as you read through this first three chapters, he continues, and we see that God chose persons, individuals, to believe in Him. We considered this last week. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to this world, but God chose dealing with the doctrine of election and how if we grasp that and understand that, it pushes us and drives us to humility. So if you are in Christ Jesus, it is is not ultimately because you were born into a believing family or because you were smart enough to discern Jesus' true identity. It isn't because you were even self-aware enough to know that you needed a Savior, but rather, as it says in chapter 1, verse 30, it's because of Him that you are in Christ. Behind every outward circumstance, every VBS teacher, every camp, every parent who's kneeling with their kids by the bedside, leading them to the Lord, sharing the gospel with them behind everything, all of those circumstances that led us to repentance and faith, it is the Father who called you. It was the Son who sought you and the Spirit who sealed you. No one can say, hey, I jumped in. Look, look, look what I did. I grafted myself in. No, we must learn to say and say often, I'm only a Christian because God made me one. I am only a Christian because God made me one. And then and only then will we, as John Piper says, move away from self-exaltation to God-exaltation, to Christ-exaltation. It's when we realize what God has done. Keep going through chapter 2. Paul starts talking about God's wisdom and how it's different from the world's wisdom. And how a person comes to understand it is not by virtue or cleverness, but it's a gift from God. You see, a natural person does not accept the things of God. A natural person doesn't say, 
Oh, I get that. I like that. I treasure that. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Natural persons don't have the Spirit of God abiding within them, so they don't understand, they don't want, they don't long after. And all of us, by our very nature, are blind to the beauty of God's truth. The secret and hidden wisdom that it says in chapter 2, verse 7. Well, it's also here in chapter 2 that we see that this prideful wisdom murdered the Son of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Talking about the rulers of this age. Not just Herod and Pilate, but as we saw last week, the wise, the scribe, the debater of this age. In other words, proud people crucified the Lord of glory. When we hear a message, the gospel, the message of the cross, when somebody meets a Savior like Jesus, they reach in their natural self, they reach for wood and for nails to crucify Him. Crucify Him, they would yell. Chapter 3, moving along, we get to the famous agricultural part. In verse 6, famous to many of us, neither... The one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God, right? It is God who gives the growth. No one can take the credit for it. Farmers, gardeners, you you know this well, probably better than most. What have you really made grow? What have you really grown, made grow? Nothing, right? You put it in the ground, you watered it, but did you make it sprout? Did you have anything to do with that? No. No credit can we take. This is exactly what Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says when we labor for holiness, labor for godliness. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And just to break that down a little bit, that word will and to work for His good pleasure, will means it is God who gives you the desire. You don't naturally want or have the desire to grow in godliness and holiness. So if you do today, it's because God has given you a desire to follow after Him, to go after Him, and to want that. And not only has He given you the desire, but it says He has given you the ability to work for His good pleasure. So God gets all the credit. There, and also as you move towards the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we read about spiritual maturity and immaturity. This is where I think some have developed the perverse idea of a carnal Christian. You heard that before? Carnal Christianity, and by that they mean someone who claims Christ but lives in a quasi-committed Christian lifestyle. A a one-foot-in, one-foot-out kind of Christianity. Or better put, in Jesus' words, someone who doesn't take up his cross daily. Someone who says, hey, I I want this Jesus stuff not really. I'm half in, I'm half out. I'm a carnal Christian. I live by the flesh, but I still trust in Jesus. First John tells us that doesn't go together. Light and darkness, they don't mix. Can't have that. It's an oxymoron. Listen to how Jesus said it in Luke chapter 9, uh, 23 through 26. And he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would say, 
save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? Friend, if you're here this morning as one who has ingested this teaching of carnal Christianity, maybe you thought you were converted years ago because you simply prayed a prayer or walked down an aisle or got baptized at church camp, but life hasn't really changed for you. And honestly, if you're being, I guess, being honest with yourself, maybe you're saying, I really just haven't had the desire to change. If that's you, perhaps today is the day that you would take the responsibility seriously of pursuing Christ. Running after Him. Perhaps today is the day that you would deny yourself, as Jesus said, and truly follow Him that you would run to Him. Is today that day? Is today that day? Now, having touched on all of these issues, what I'm getting at this morning is that we can look at each of these topics individually and no doubt find wonderful truths to teach and rebuke and train us for godliness. Not just as individuals like I, haven't, I have something to say to me personally, which it does, but Paul's writing to a local church. So it has something to teach us as a body of believers that gather week in and week out here at Crosspoint. It's teaching us something and training us and correcting us. But I think we learn to read the Bible better when we start looking for what's underneath the surface. Not in a mystic kind of way, trying to figure out what's there and what's not, and, and, and making analogies out of everything. But we're trying to say, okay, what's Paul really driving at? What's he getting at? What is underneath the surface? What is the common thread that's holding all of these together in this argument? And at the risk of sounding redundant, unless our boasting is in the Lord, God hates it. That's what's underneath the surface at Corinth. That's what's going on in their congregation and no doubt going on in our own hearts and in our own congregation as well. And it's only by God's grace as we look in the mirror of His Word with the sight-giving help of the Holy Spirit will we begin to see ourselves as we actually are and stop strutting through life as if our strength were not fragile, as if our knowledge were not narrow, our passions not perverse, our abilities not lacking, our significance in a world of social media likes and craving for kudos well-deserved and stop boasting in the delusion of self and humble ourselves before Almighty God. So when we do this, we truly learn to boast. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in our passage. He gives one final breathtaking conclusion to what he's been talking about in chapters 1 through 3. It starts in verse 18 of chapter 3, where he's speaking to this root issue. He simply says this. Here's the argument. Just four simple words. All things are yours. 
all things are yours. That's his reasoning for boasting in the Lord. Why should we boast in the Lord? All things are yours. And that's my aim for the rest of the time that we have is to unpack what that means. Following the text, there are two parts marked off by identical opening exhortations. You'll, you'll note them by in chapter 18, or verse 18, with the, the phrase, let no one. And then you'll see that again in verse 21, where it says, let no one. And that, that marks off two different points, what Paul's saying, two exhortations that he's given. I've labeled them in uh, the notes section in your bulletin as who you are and what you have. Who you are and what you have. So following on the heels uh, of verse 17, we see this severe warning of God destroying the one who destroys God's temple, his dwelling, his church. He says, I will, Paul goes on to say right after this warning, he says, let no one deceive themselves or delude themselves. Don't mislead yourself. Don't lie to yourself. And so, again, it's an issue with self. You remember when you were in third grade, kids, and, and somebody would point a finger at you? And what would you say to them? Well, you got three fingers pointing right back at you. You guys remember doing that? How many times in our world are we always looking for somebody else to blame? Well, it's their fault. My marriage has problems because of my spouse. It's always somebody else's fault. My workplace, I'm not getting what I deserve because of them. And here, Paul said, don't deceive yourself. First, we need to turn inward and look at who we really are. Who are we? Better stated, for those of us who believe in Christ, we should say, whose we are. We need to look at whose we are. Verse 23, it says, you are Christ's. What does that mean that you are Christ's? If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to over to the left, just a few pages, let's, turn, let's look at Romans chapter 6. It's a wonderful passage to describe the Christian and who we are coming on the heels of last week's baptisms and this week celebrating the Lord's Supper together. These two identity markers to identify who is in Christ who is in the church, who is out, we get this phrase from Paul or this passage here. Chapter 6, starting in verse 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know, okay, here's this self-identifying thing, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, might, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, 
He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And then listen to this. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves or think of yourselves or know that you are this. Who are you? Think of yourselves in this way. That you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are, Christian. That's who you are. You are not your own. You are bought with the costly price of Jesus' shed blood. Who are we? Because we're not saved. This is what I love about communion today and celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's not just an individual act. It's not just that we take it and we bow our heads and we don't look around and it's just me and Jesus. That's why communion, communion is for the gathered assembly. It's us. He saved us. Listen to what he says, not just about who you are, but who we are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. Now I wonder if you picked up on the phrase that walks through this Scripture and even the passage here in Romans. It's a phrase, and you'll see it in chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, God is doing a work. He is bringing to nothing the things that are. Bringing to nothing the things that are. God is bringing to nothing, or as we just read, our old self was crucified so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that the rule and reign of self, pride, would come to an end. I think you can trace this. I don't think I'm reaching too hard here, but I reserve the right to be wrong. You can trace this work throughout the Scriptures. God bringing to nothing. Just think of Adam and Eve in the Paradise Garden. Kicked out. Banished from the presence of God. Brought to nothing. Think about Job with all his sudden and tragic losses, including the lives of his children, reduced to nothing. Just think about Jonah following his own desires and wisdom thrown overboard, wrapped in seaweed, lifeless, at the bottom of the sea, brought to nothing. What about the Israelites? Brought by God into slavery in Egypt? Nothing. Or Jesus saying it this way, coming after me means losing your life. Brought to nothing. Friends, why is God bringing things to nothing? He brings things to nothing so that He can give you everything. So that He can give you everything. And guess what? He is everything. He is everything. All that was ruined and lost in the garden, all of sin and death, and all of this can be summarized in, they lost God. They didn't have God anymore. What you and I get in the Gospel is not just forgiveness, not just redemption, not just adoption and peace, not just 
One, one of these days, no pain and sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness. We don't just get a mansion in heaven. We don't get just crowns and rewards. You get God. That's the whole point of the gospel. Is that you get Him. Not just what He gives you. Do you want Him? Do you want God? That's the really, really, really good news of the gospel. And God is at work stripping away, pruning the branches, refining by fire so that all we have and all we want is Him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, or chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ also suffered once for the sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He, that is Jesus, might bring us to God. God is doing the work to bring about nothing so that we get everything. And that leads me to the next point of what you have to boast in. Look at verse 21 through 23. It says, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let me ask you, do you, you know why pride is so persuasive? It's because, for at least a moment, it gives you what you grasp for. The admiration of your peers. The eyes of passing admirers. The laughter of the crowd. The pleasure of being part of the in crowd and the group. But the purchase is costlier than it appears. For pride offers us something only in exchange for all things. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Because you are in Christ, you don't just get the little things that our pride is going after. I just need an applause here. I just need someone to like this. I need to get more clicks on social media. I need to boost myself up. He's saying, you have it all. Why do you need to be finding your little patches here on this earth? Why do you need to be saying, this is what I got. Look at look what I can do. Paul's saying, you have it all. This is kind of a hard sentence to wrap your mind around. Maybe today at lunch when you go with your family or friends, just ponder that together. What do you mean, all things? What does that mean? That's a hard one. D.A. Carson explains it, the logic like this, saying, all things are yours. You see, if we truly belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God, then we belong to God. Everything belongs to our Heavenly Father, and we are His children, so everything belongs to us. That's what we have. For the Christian, pride is in fact a cutting off from our heritage. Think of the two sons. Father, I want my inheritance now. I want to go swindle it away. The other one's staying there working, complaining that he didn't get his, and God said, you could have done anything you wanted. You could have had the fattened calf anytime you wanted. It's all yours. It's all here. 
But our pride dupes us into thinking that our, our rightful heritage is here and now, and, and we, we lose the, the fact that God has said, I've already given you all things. Five times he mentions different things here. The world, life, death, the present, and the future. These things that we hear here, they're all formerly tyrants of human existence, enslaving people to lifelong bondage. But now, in Christ, they become birthrights for our enjoyment, for all who belong to Him. Life becomes enjoyable. Death no longer has a sting. We have no fear of death. The present, our sufferings, become joyful because we know that God is doing something that we can't see. That He is working all things together for our good. And our future is certain. If you're not in Christ, you don't think that way. You don't believe that. You see the world, life, and death, and the present, and the future as just a burden. Damning. Horrible. Just can't wait to get out of here. And yes, we want to be away from sin. We want to see sin eradicated. We were longing for that day. But friends, God has given us these things. They're, all of them are yours. They're servants of yours to draw you closer to Him, to make you more like Him. I used to say, I heard it said a long time ago, if the goal of being the Christian life was just to get snatched up and go to heaven, why wouldn't God take you as soon as you believe? He leaves us here, gives us everything to sanctify us, to change us. It's a rehearsal for all of eternity, right here and right now. If you're not a Christian, you might be wondering, how can I belong to Him? I want to belong to Him. The Bible clearly says the way you belong to Jesus is by repenting and turning to Him in faith. The Bible says that all of those who would recognize that they need a Savior, all of those who would say, God, I deserve Your judgment, I deserve Your wrath to be poured out on me, and turn to Him for mercy and forgiveness, He will save you. He will give you eternal life. That's how you become His. He unites you to Himself like we read in Romans, in a death like His. And not just that, but a resurrection like His. For the death and resurrection of Jesus marks a turning point for Paul. The ages, nothing is outside of Christ's jurisdiction. One writer said it like this, the cross is God planting His flag and claiming the whole world as His and all of those who are following Him. So when pride tells you, friend, that you are deprived of some good, when it tempts you to boast, we must remember that our Heavenly Father owns all things and will arrange the circumstances in this world, our life, our death, our present, and our future, so that we can say with King David, Psalm 23, I shall not want. I have nothing to want for. Because I've been given all things. Friends, when we indulge in our pride, we are like a prince who scrambles for two acres of lot in his father's kingdom, forgetting that the father owns it all already. Pride offers us something, but only for a moment. God offers us 
all things now for our good and in the end to give us the whole earth. And we will reign with Him. So, in conclusion, don't deceive yourself. Don't be duped. Stop boasting in momentary pleasures here and now and clamoring for this and that. Know that you belong to Christ and that Christ belongs to God and therefore you belong to God and He has given you everything. Friend, He has given you Himself. What else do you need? Let's boast in that. Let's pray.